Well, hey, howdy, all you little buckaroos out there in Listen Land. This here's Cowboy Hub wrangling you up another heaping helping of tighten up the defense. The rootinest, tootinest podcast this side of the Pecos. Yeehaw! Eh, trying something new there. Don't think it totally worked. For one thing, you may not have noticed, but this is not generally a cowboy-themed podcast. For another thing, I'm not entirely sure which side of the Pecos I'm on. If I'm entirely honest, I don't think I know what a Pecos is. Is it? Oh, that's right. Pecos is those uh, Japanese breadcrumbs made from crustless bread. Delicious. Mmm, Pecos breaded. It's probably a mountain range, right? Yeah, that sounds plausible. Okay, well, this didn't make a ton of sense, but I think that makes it an appropriate segue into the issue of Defenders we are about to cover today. We are headed at full speed straight into the Steve Gerber run of the series, and boy, is it ever Steve Gerbery. I hope you enjoy it. So, tell you what. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Yeehaw! Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Josh Bickford, and it is a synopsis haiku. Hulk smash, green of fist. Doctor Strange lectures, must miss. Hub write, synopsis. Very nice. I don't think I've ever heard a rhyming haiku before. Thanks, Josh! Defenders number 20. February 1975. The Woman She Was. Written by Steve Gerber. Layouts by Sal Buscema. Finished art by Vince Coletta. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored it by P. Goldberg. And edited by Len Wein. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie, Doctor Strange, Nighthawk, and The Thing. Previously in The Defenders. Valkyrie finally made good on her threats to quit our titular non-team and embark on a sojourn of self-discovery. Ever since the villainous Asgardian asshole Amora the Enchantress had gone ahead and jammed the mystical persona of the fierce Norse warrior Valkyrie into the body of magically insane former cult member Barbara Norris, Val had been meaning to find out more about the woman Barbara used to be. So after several issues of false starts, our harried heroine hit the road. Said sojourn led our sword-slinging, sorcerously Scandinavian superhero to the idyllic town of Cobbler's Roost, Vermont. Gadzooks! Is that really all the pertinent backstory to this issue? Can I dispense with the previously in section so soon? No, of course not. Because... <sighs> previously in Marvel 2 and 1. Doctor Strange and the Thing, a.k.a. Benjamin Grimm, ran afoul of a nigh-omnipotent mystical McGovern called the Harmonica of Destiny, which did, um, things. There was a hippie lady who was playing it in the subway, but she got hit by a train and exploded into a puff of fairy dust. And everyone the dust touched had a manifestation of their destiny, or greatest fear, or self-image, or something come to life. Steve took the harmonica home to study, then he and the thing fought a giant rat and magicked a faceless dude's face back on. One spark of fairy dust landed on alcoholic hobo Alvin Denton, who happened to be the father of Valkyrie's hapless human host body, Barbara Norris. Valkyrie showed up out of nowhere, swiped the harmonica from the Sanctum Sanctimonious, and kidnapped Alvin. Only it turns out it wasn't Val after all, but the aforementioned Asgardian asshole Amora the Enchantress. Amora and her equally assholish Asgardian amigos scourged the executioner dragged Alvin to a mystical gas station they invented in rural Vermont. 
The pair of perfidious purveyors of pretend petroleum then ambushed the thing who was headed up to Cobbler's Roost to confront Valkyrie, who he believed had swiped the harmonica of nonsense. After knocking Ben out, Amora and Scourge decided to let them go. Because, um, because... Well, just because. The thing gave Alvin a lift up to Cobbler's Roost. Alvin recognized Val as his daughter, but she didn't recognize him, and that made the alcoholic Alvin real, real sad. Unfortunately, the despondent dad didn't have long to sadly hum cats in the cradle to himself, because the one-sided reunion was interrupted by Emora and Scourge, who jumped out from behind some magic and yelled, Surprise! Our heroes and Alvin certainly seemed surprised, especially when Amora used a spell to turn Val back into the still sorcerously bonkers Barbara Norris. Seeing his beloved daughter manically shrieking a long string of capital A's was too much for Alvin Denton, who did what any concerned father would do in the situation, start playing the harmonica. The heartsick hobo swiped the harmonica of destiny from Amora and started playing. As soon as Alvin started blowing on the mystical mouth organ, the harmonica ex machina manifested the distraught Denton's despair and started destroying the entire planet. Bummer! The enchantress turns the gibbering Barbara back into Val in an attempt to placate Denton, but to no avail. The demoralized dad seemed intent on inadvertently tooting the world to death. It appeared that the world would not end with a whimper nor a bang, but with the atonal vibrations emanating from a drunk harmonica player. Then the thing grabbed the harmonica, played it for a second, and everything was fine. Hooray? Well, to be fair, everything was fine except Alvin Denton died of a heart attack. But everything else was fine. Val and Ben beat the crud out of Amora and Scourge then took a second to be sad that Alvin Denton was dead. God, Zooks! Will Valkyrie have any better luck with the rest of her attempt at a family reunion? Is destiny an all-pervasive force that is preordained and controls every aspect of life on Earth, or an easily foiled ambiguous concept that can be derailed by minor decisions? And will every issue of The Defenders that Steve Gerber writes leave me with a brain made out of tapioca shambling around my house frantically pleading with the universe to answer the question, What happened? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so her mom is a cryptkeeper-looking evil occultist who gets a cult leader to stab Val in the forehead with an energy sword to steal her youth, so I'm gonna say no, not really. Yes, except when it isn't. And, good lord, I hope not, but all signs point to yes. Seriously, to paraphrase myself, synopsizing a Gerber script is like trying to put a saddle on a tornado. I was seriously tempted to just tell you guys to listen to the beginning of episode 51 rather than write that previously in section. Wait a minute, come to think of it, why didn't I just do that? Damn it, me! Val's still pretty bummed out about the dad she doesn't remember having died a second ago. Scourge uses Val's grief as a distraction and tries to attack the thing, but Ben beats the shit out of the disrespectful douchebag deity. Good. The Enchantress snags her clobbered compatriot and teleports them away. The thing's a little confused by that, seeing as how they had previously been intent on using the harmonica of whatever to conquer the world. You and me both, Benji. The blue-eyed mineral marvel figures that the antagonistic Asgardian assholes must have figured that the musical MacGuffin was all out of magic juice and now was just a regular old harmonica. Fair enough. I mean, he doesn't seem to be basing that theory on anything, but... Maybe it was his destiny to solve that particular puzzle without any clues or evidence. Val's still pretty bummed out, and when Ben suggests loading her dad's corpse into the Fantastic Four's flying science mobile, she snaps at him and insists that dealing with Alvin's remains is something that she has to do for herself. Without another word, the despondent defender starts aimlessly wandering around small-town bucolic Vermont, carrying her dead father's body like a sack of groceries. 
The Thing considers an attempt at dissuading her from this course of action, but eventually decides that it is Val's decision and she has the right to handle her grief in any way that she sees fit. Ben is about to hop into his flying science car and head back to New York when Doctor Strange's astral form pops in and is all like, What's this? Someone respecting a woman's autonomy and allowing her to make her own decisions? It must not be so. So swears Doctor Strange. Steve insists that Val is probably in grave danger or something and mustn't be left to her own devices. For some reason, the defenders need to solve the mystery of why the harmonica of malarkey has the word Celestia inscribed on it. Okay. I had honestly just kind of assumed that Celestia was the name of the harmonica manufacturer. You know, like Marvel Universe's mystical version of Honer. Ben spends a couple of pages reminiscing of all the events I covered in the previously in Marvel 2-in-1 thingy. Then he falls asleep under a tree. Aw. Meanwhile, Val is strolling around downtown Cobbler's Roost carrying her dead dad. A gangster-looking guy recognizes her and immediately runs off to tell someone named Van Nyborg that she's back in town. Hmm. Val eventually stumbles across the police station and drops her dad off there. The sheriff recognizes her as Barbara Norris and does his best to console her. Val decides that the best course of action is not to let anyone know that she doesn't have Barbara's memories and just play along with the townsfolk. Good thinking, Val. Why... If they suspected you didn't remember who you were, then you might be able to ask them questions, and they might answer them. What kind of way is that to find information out? The sheriff, whose name is Tom, arranges for Alvin's burial, buys Val a cup of coffee, gives her the spare set of keys to her dad's house, and casually informs her, and us, that she is or was married to a guy named Jack Norris. Wow, thanks for moving the plot along, Sheriff Tom. I guess in a small town like Cobbler's Roost, the pace moves a little slower, and the sheriff has extra time for whittling or fishing or expositional assistance. Yes, sir, it sure is a placid, idyllic town, and I, for one, would be absolutely shocked to discover that any dark secrets lurked behind those white picket fences. Shocked, I say. Sheriff Tom drops Val off at her dad's old house and presumably heads off to further other plot lines for the rest of the townsfolk. A sheriff's work is never done. Back under Ben Grimm's snoozing tree, the adorable pile of orange rocks has his nap interrupted by the arrival of Doctor Strange. Hi, Steve. Steve is joined by his non-teammate, billionaire-do-well bird enthusiast, Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk. Hi, Kyle. Steve and Kyle bicker like an old married couple. Then Steve says that he senses something very disturbing at the old Denton estate. Maybe it's a demon, or worse, Val trying to reassert her agency. Stephen Strange to the rescue! Steve levitates Ben and Kyle, and the trio fly over to Valkyrie's dad's house. Inside the Denton estate, Valkyrie is poking around the house. It seems familiar, but not too familiar. But not too not familiar. Her musings are interrupted by the silhouette of a shadowy figure who appears to have a tire jack on his head, yelling, Sister Barbara, welcome back. We've been waiting for you. Oh, well, that's nice. Oh, wait. No, it isn't. The tire jack-headed, shadowy figure blasts Valkyrie with a bolt of magic and knocks her out. Outside the house, the rest of the team is arriving. Hooray! The three heroes land on the lawn, and Ben and Kyle immediately fall into a trapdoor and get locked in the basement. Whoops. The pair of pratfall-prone protagonists find themselves locked in a subterranean cell with that gangster guy who spotted Val earlier. Ben is about to rough the mug up, but Kyle tells him not to for some reason, so he doesn't. 
The thing tries to bust through the wall, but it is electrified. Then they notice that the gangster guy is gone, and they're trapped alone in a cell with no exit. Oh no! Then they find an exit. What a journey. Meanwhile, Doctor Strange, who escaped the trap by floating for a second, wanders into Old Man Denton's house. The self-satisfied Sorcerer Supreme spots a portrait of an attractive middle-aged woman hanging on the wall. Why, that woman looks like an older version of Valkyrie. That must mean that she's... A time-traveling version of Valkyrie from an alternate future timeline. Of course! Or she's Val's mom. It's a Marvel Universe, so I'd give it kind of even odds on that one. But for now, let's figure it's Val's mom. Steve goes on to notice that the name on the portrait is Celestia Denton. Celestia. But that can only mean that Barbara Norris's family produces and manufactures harmonicas. Or something. Steve gets ambushed and knocked out by the same tire-jack-headed silhouette. Bummer. He awakes in the basement chained to an altar next to Val. Then, a whole bunch of crazy nonsense bullshit happens. Tirejackhead introduces himself as Van Nyborg and explains that he's the leader of an evil cult that worships the Nameless One. The Nameless One, who I like to call Glenn, is an evil two-headed extra-dimensional douchebag who Barbara Norris dated briefly when they were stuck alone in a shitty dimension together. Hey, we've all made embarrassing romantic decisions. The Defenders stumbled into their love nest back in Defenders number 3, and Steve decided to rescue Barbara by magically severing her psychic bond with Glenn. Bad move, Steve. The non-consensual suffering of their psychic union left Barbara magically insane, shrieking a long string of capital A's, which is the state Amor the Enchantress, the Asgardian asshole from before, found Barbara in when she overrode Barbara's personality with Valkyries. Anyway, Van Nyborg seems like a real piece of shit. He's been hanging out in the basement with his fellow cult members worshipping Glenn, who is now starting to appear in the room with them. But it turns out the real asshole in this scenario is Barbara's mom, Celestia. Something must have happened to her a couple of years ago, because she looks all cryptkeepery and has a mouth like Two-Face. Apparently, all that shit that went down with Glenn and Amora and Valkyrie and Barbara was the result of Celestia fiddling around with... <sighs> Destiny. The end game is she wants to stab Val and Steve through the head with a magic sword, which will sacrifice their lives to Glenn, which will make Glenn super powerful, and will let Celestia take over Valkyrie slash Barbara's body and be young and pretty again. Or something. I think. Anyway, this nonsense garbage of a plan is about to go off without a hitch. Except for one thing. I guess Celestia and Van Nyborg must have forgotten to adjust their clocks for daylight savings time. See, they think it's four in the afternoon, but actually, it's clobberin' time! I mean, to be fair, it's always clobberin' time somewhere. Ben and Kyle bust in and commence to clobberin' cultists. Hooray! But they may be too late, because Van Nyborg has already plunged his weird two-pronged magic sword into Steve and Val's foreheads. Oh no! Ben punches Glenn right in the face. Well, one of his faces. Or his dick. Glenn's kind of a weird pile of anatomy, and it's a little tough to tell. Celestia is about to blow on her self-titled harmonica, which I guess will do something. Probably. But, before the maniacal matriarch can mush her mouth onto the mystical MacGuffin, the thing snatches the instrument away from her and crushes it in one rock-like fist. Suddenly, Celestia crumbles into dust. Glenn disappears, and Steve and Val instantly recover from being stabbed through the head. Okay. Hooray? I guess... Steve hypnotizes Van Nyborg and all the cultists and sends them to their rooms without supper. The end. 
What the fuck? I know I said this at the end of the last Gerber issue, but what happened? You know, I didn't think there was anything I hated quite so much as the philosophical concept of destiny, but it turns out there just might be. And that's the plot device of destiny. Oh, and also the Los Angeles Lakers. God, I hate the Lakers. And joining us once again is my good for many things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's okay. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, we are on to the Steve Gerber issues of this comic book. And I think it may be that we open most of these with the question of the day, which is, what, what happened? happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, dude, what happened? I don't know. I like, though, that we said that in unison unrehearsed, because what else would you say? Exactly. Yeah, it was a heck of a time. I will say I overall enjoyed this. I didn't as much the first time around because there was way too much of a what happened factor. Mm -hmm. But upon rereading it, I was able to just kind of, rather than try to wrangle the nonsense into coherence, just kind of surf the nonsense. Just ride, and, ride that wave. And it was pretty fun. I feel I enjoyed it more as you did on the second read, but also because we were kind of talking and joking about it, and it, it helped me get past the frustration of just really not understanding exactly what I'm supposed to understand from yeah, the story. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. This issue read in a couple of different ways to me, one of which we were talking about before we recorded. You felt like it was like when you were writing a term paper in college. Yep. You get to a certain point where you maybe lose track of the narrative or you didn't really have a coherent thesis to begin with. But at that point, what you have is momentum. Right. And you're just too deep in to <laughs> stop and you get to the end and you said, I used a lot of words. Yep. Paper is done. This seemed like a comic that ended when the page count ran out rather than when the story concluded. Mm. It seemed like it's like, oh, sweet. I'm on page 32. I'm almost done. Uh, so then everything ended. It also at times read almost like an exquisite corpse, mm. like that as a writer, he hadn't been aware of what had happened three pages ago, but did know what happened on the previous page. And it was a continuation of that without any real knowledge of the story before then. You think William S. Burroughs was involved in this? <laughs> I <laughs> think it's, it's possible. <laughs> what you boys need to do? <laughs> well, uh. Okay. You bring up William Burroughs. William Burroughs, a noted heroin enthusiast. Mm -hmm. I feel that the characters in this issue, if not the author of the issue, was perhaps influenced by a different drug. <laughs> Everybody in this goddamn comic book is acting like they are stoned out of their minds on marijuana. Yep. Yep. Uh, on marijuana. Yeah. And it started off with the Enchantress and... The executioner slugging it out with the thing. Mm -hmm. You pointed out something that I had not noticed about the Enchantress's tiara? Headband. Headband? I don't really know. Yeah, but it does kind of look like a pot leaf on there. Kind of not really, but I kept wanting to see it that way on account of her like green super weedy outfit. Where <laughs> she's like the super anti-hero of weed. Yeah, I think that makes sense for her character. And the delightful side effect of that for me was then reading all of her dialogue in a very stoned lady voice. How about you give that a shot there? Sure. All right. 
On page three, we find the Enchantress just having erected a barrier that the Executioner rammed a tree into because she wanted to stop him so they could get out of there and do some other stuff. Right. And he's very mad. And he says, Enchantress, it was thee? And she says, Hey, our business here is done, my brutish ally. Tis folly. I am Canadian now. Yeah, apparently. It's folly to fight once the prize is lost, man. <laughs> okay, man's not part of the dialogue. It's implied. Why don't you try it? You can, <laughs> Let's hear your stoner enchantress voice. Thus, let us depart <laughs> to seek another route to conquest of Earth and Asgard. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but as she finishes saying that, she explodes, like they teleport away, but it looks like they kind of explode into a cloud of smoke. I believe she just hotboxed the entire town of Cobbler's Roost, mm. which would explain further behavior by a couple of people. One of them is Valkyrie. Mm. I kept trying to make sense of Valkyrie. I understand that she's playing things a little bit close to her chest, but the idea that she's like, well, I can't let anybody find out that I don't have any of Barbara Denton's memories. Why not? Yeah, just say I hit my head. Yeah, or, or something. just like, I'm sorry, I, I just don't remember any of my previous life. Then you get to ask questions, then you get to more accurately learn about who you used to be. People will talk to you. Amnesia is a thing that exists in the Marvel Universe. It's a thing that I think is probably more common than the flu. Mm. Just ask some questions. But no, she is acting like a stoner who has smoked pot with some people and then doesn't want to let those people that she has just smoked pot with know how high she is. Mm -hmm. I think... Theoretically, I could identify with that kind of, you know, if I was the type of person who would partake of a recently illegal drug, right? then I think that would be the sort of sentiment that I would have perhaps experienced. It was an interesting tack for them to take, and that is totally what it read like to me. Just like, I can't let these people know that I'm high. Dude, Valkyrie, they don't give a shit that you're high. Mm -hmm. It's cool. Yeah, it's Vermont. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just a laid-back place. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I guess the Ben Jerry's factory hasn't opened yet, but just wait it out a few years, buddy. Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah. All the Cherry Garcia you can handle. Indeed. Man. Swing by Wavy Gravy's pad. Oh, yeah. Wait, he's from Vermont? No, the ice cream is from The Vermont. ice cream's from Vermont, so in my mind, he hangs out there a lot. Said <laughs> he was more of a California clown. I think that's probably true. Okay. But, you know... He got his start at Woodstock in neighboring upstate New York. Right. He's got probably some kind of an interest in the Ben and Jerry's flavor that bears his name. Probably. He probably even He probably spends a consult. lot of time up there. Yeah. Yeah. Trying different additions. He doesn't look like he hasn't eaten any of that ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the other reason it seems like everybody's high in this issue is whenever anybody plays the harmonica, they look like they're going to eat it like a sandwich. Oh, that is true. It comes up like four different times. Mm. And maybe that's just the nature of harmonicas, but it totally, there is a scene where the thing is playing a harmonica and he looks like he's trying to eat a hoagie. There is a scene of Alvin Denton, Valkyrie's now deceased father, looking like he's about to chow down on that harmonica. Mm -hmm. And there is a scene at the end of Valkyrie's asshole mom. Ugh. Just about to chow the fuck down on that harmonica. It's rather scary. It's really frightening. I don't know what the fuck happened to that lady. We he see... has the munchies so, so bad. She is going to eat the fuck out of that harmonica that she has her name <laughs> written on. Ugh. So, 
that was another example and just a general air of confusion and things not making as much sense as they should really led me to believe that perhaps the entire town of Cobbler's Roost had just been hotboxed by Enchantress. That's fair. Let's talk about the art in this issue real quickly. Okay. What were your thoughts on it? Um, I don't know. Pretty It standard. seemed pretty consistent to you? It didn't to me. It seemed like a definite step down. We have Vince Coletta doing the inks here, but the way that it's credited, it says that the layouts are by Sal Buscema rather than the pencils, and that the finished art is by Vince Coletta. Hmm. Now, they play around with the way that they phrase the art, but it doesn't look as much like Sal Buscema as recent issues have. Specifically, the way he draws the thing is a lot less consistent. Mm-hmm. And Vince Coletta's a fine inker. He was mostly known for doing the a ton of Jack Kirby's art uh, on the Fantastic Four, and I think later he did a really good job on Kirby's art in the New God stuff at DC. Uh, him and Mike Royer are probably the two most common of Kirby's inkers, although Joe Sinnott did a fair amount too. But I don't think he does as good a job on this, and I think partly he's doing more than just the ink on this. What it says when it's layout instead of pencils, what I take that to mean, and I might be wrong on this, it seems like kind of maybe Sal Buscema didn't have as much time. The layout usually means it's just kind of like stick figure type. Mm. Here's what happens in this panel. Mm. And then the artwork is done over that. Mm-hmm. So that would mean that Coletta was doing most of the pencils and then the inks or just inking without having pencils under it. And it doesn't come across as well for me. Things seem a lot more vague. Expressions are less defined. There's a panel in which Nighthawk is supposed to look horrified and surprised at the same time. And uh-huh. His eyes are drawn in different shapes. <laughs> I kind of like that. Also makes him look just <laughs> maybe kind of zonkered. Yeah. Yeah. There is also a scene in which the town sheriff is comforting Val where he just looks dumb as a box of stupid. I think he's supposed to be looking sympathetic and concerned, but he comes out looking kind of gnarky. Like... Kind of caveman-y mm. and pretty dumb. Yeah. Which maybe we find out later he's fucking Gnark. It well, honestly would not surprise me the way events are unfolding in this issue. Pre-education Gnark. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. The kind of Gnark who is looking at the chalkboard that says, My j- name is John Gnark. I live at Jupiter Towers with a look of horrified confusion. <laughs> My name is John Gnark. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good times. Oh boy, I miss those times. Mm. Simpler uh, times. Less sim- confusing. Simpler times. We talked briefly about old Alvin Denton. Now, you hadn't previously read the Marvel 2-in-1. That was while you were, I believe, shrunk down to the size of an ant. Right. Was this more confusing without having read it? I listened to your synopsis from okay. that episode, which clued me in. Yeah, I mean, what a coincidence coincidence Mm, there are no coincidences or are there unless sometimes there are but yeah we meet alvin denton in the last issue and he's a homeless dude hanging out in new york city but in this issue we find out like we find out he used to be a lawyer and then he freaked out and has been down on his luck and has turned into a street person in new york we find out in this issue he's got a house in Vermont, that's like this giant mansion that he just isn't at anymore. Mm-hmm. Dude is bad at being a drunk hobo. Like, why wouldn't he just sell the house or hang out at the house? Like, he has a place to live. I just... 
I assumed he would have just, like, he lost all his money and then lost the house. Mm -hmm. But he's still apparently got maybe not a ton of cash on hand, but he's got a place he can just live rent-free. So maybe you can help me understand something. I'll try. The catalyst for his descent into being bad with money and a homeless drunk sure. is the death of his wife in a car accident. Yeah. And the, then his daughter disappears. Right. Both are, like, mom... Okay, his daughter did disappear. His wife was just a part of an evil cult the whole time. Yeah. I don't know what happened Not with dead that. in a car accident. Apparently not. What? I do not know. So Maybe it was a second wife who died in a car accident and he broke up with... No, that doesn't work, because he probably wouldn't keep the portrait of his ex-wife up in his house if mm -hmm. he had a new wife after that. Mm -hmm. I guess she was faking it? She faked her death, so right. she could make the harmonica of, of whatever we want to call it. Yeah, the DSX harmonica. Mm -hmm. That one. Did she create the harmonica? Probably. That sounds fair. Why not? Yeah, no, there's a lot happening here that I, I didn't quite grasp, and yeah, that's one of them. There's no real walk back on... Mrs. Denton not being dead. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure. I mean, she looked pretty rough. She did look pretty rough. I wasn't sure if that was like, wait, is that just supposed to be what? Is that what they think old people look like? Like half your face is purple and you're. And just kind of melting. Yeah, melting. And yeah, half of it's gone. And we see that like six years ago, she looked perfectly normal. She looked basically like Val. Like very, very Dr. Pretty. Strange recognizes yep. the pretty and it's like, oh, she looks like Valkyrie, but a little bit more mature. We see the date on that photo is 1968. 1968. Mm -hmm. So in that five years, she has turned into a fucking banshee. Mm -hmm. And that it's all been an attempt to recapture her youth. That's uh, what happens when you mess with the evil, nameless ones. Yeah, man, we see Glenn shows back up. Oh, yeah. That was also drawn in a very confusing manner. And he didn't say anything, which isn't really Glenn's way. He was always bellowing shit, mm -hmm. being pissed off. It was strange in that regard. What regard was it not strange in? I liked the scenes in which Val was wandering around Cobbler's Roost, not wanting anybody to know how high she was, but trying to find out clues about her youth. Just seeing Val wandering around her hometown not knowing anybody was kind of fun, and I enjoyed that in a detective way, and that seemed like kind of a normal story. Okay. I mean, you have to discount the fact that she's behaving in a weird way by... Being like, no, you can't know that I'm not the person that I used to be. Carrying her dead dad Just, yeah, to the sheriff. toting the dude around the streets with nobody saying anything. Oh, somebody said something. Eventually. She's strong enough to carry a full-grown man. Yeah. A woman. What? How can it be? What do you think that gangster's deal was? He's dressed too nice for Cobbler's Roost. Well, and it seems weird that he's... He doesn't seem like the type of dude who'd be reporting back to Van Nyborg, the cult leader. Also, I think Van Nyborg's a pretty fun name for a cult leader. Yeah, I think Van Nyborg went up to New York City and just bought himself a fancy gangster man. Oh. It's like, I'm... Just like it was an impulse buy? The gangster men were near the register? And yeah. he's like, you know what? Yeah. Cobbler's Roost could really use one of you. <laughs> one of yous. Yeah, I could use one of yous up in Cobbler's Roost. Isn't that fun the way I said use? Is that what you's like? <laughs> yeah, okay. And so then he just toted him up there and just has him acting as a general handyman. Something? Look, look out. Sure. Spy. Ne'er do In case this person who I know is dead and will never show up again shows up, you tell me. 
Mm -hmm. Just hang out on that street corner by the right. lamp post. Looking inconspicuous in your purple pinstriped suit. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I was wondering what the fuck his deal was with being in the basement as some kind of a greeting committee for the superheroes who get stuck in the room down there. Oh, that's easy. Yeah? Yeah. What was he, what was he supposed to do when they showed up down there? Well, first of all, when your boss is like, you know, Van Nyborg says, hey, I put this giant trapdoor thing in my front lawn. Sure. It's got a room under it. Eventually, somebody's going to fall in there, so just go hang out. But it wasn't somebody. He was expecting the Hulk and Doctor Strange and Nighthawk to fall down there. Well, yes, because it was all orchestrated, clearly, by Celestia. Okay, what is he supposed to do when they show up down there? Be like, is he just supposed to, like, blackjack the Hulk? You guys, like, stay right here. <laughs> if he wasn't in the room, they would not know that there was any way to escape from the room. And it's not like he can fight those guys when they show up. He had no business being in that room. If he had just, like, waited in the room next door and be like, yeah, sounds like they're down there. Hey, boss, they're down there. Okay, cool. They're done. Yeah, well, I just think it demonstrates poor leadership on Van Nyborg's part. Oh, don't be, don't be dissing Van Nyborg like that. Well, he's a very good cult leader. He's maybe a good cult leader, but he's a poor director of henchmen. I feel like it is a missed opportunity for Van Nyborg to that nobody at any point refers to him as the cyborg. Van Nyborg, the cyborg cult leader. It rhymes. Yeah, That's it nice. rhymes and it's fun. I know he's not actually a cyborg, but that lady that's in uh, MMA, she's not really a cyborg either. Oh, no, that's true. She's just good at punches. As far as we know. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, she's as good at punches as a cyborg is. Van Nyborg's probably as good at being a cult leader as a cyborg is. That's very well thought out. I have no wish to debate this further. <laughs> as a man who <laughs> earlier discussed the term paper that he wrote, not term paper, your... Oh, my, my thesis, my senior thesis. Yeah, your senior thesis was on cyborg anthropology. That's correct. You can back that Van Nyborg the Cyborg makes sense as a nickname? Yep. Excellent. By my 1997 bachelor's degree accreditation. And you thought that thing wouldn't come in handy. Nyborg the Cyborg. <laughs> Cheers. Man, that sounds like a long time ago. Corey, it was a long time ago. It was 20 years ago. You're very old. Oh. I can edit that part out if you want. Thanks. <laughs> I know our listeners like to think of us both as being teen heartthrobs. <laughs> do, they, do they? Probably. <laughs> They've got their Hub and Corey pinups out of Tiger Beat magazine up on their lockers. Whoa. <laughs> See, you're doing your Joey Lawrence impression. <laughs> if you'd like to get into touch with Hub and Corey. There's a lot of talk in this issue of Destiny. There's a lot of very confused talk about Destiny that was also very confusing. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem with Destiny. This story backs itself into the corner of Destiny is an all-powerful force that guides everything that happens. Except when it isn't. Right. It's really frustrating. It comes out at the end like, Celestia had plotted this whole evil plan that had all of these moving pieces that apparently she was responsible for figuring out how and orchestrating how these events would unfold and transpire through her manipulations of destiny. But she couldn't have possibly accounted for the fact that the thing would be there. Why not? She could account for all this other shit that she couldn't account for through destiny. How is the thing someone who exists outside of destiny? Well, it was supposed to be the Hulk. Yeah, but it wasn't. So that means it wasn't destined to be the Hulk, which means that this whole thing is a sham. It's so frustrating. 
it, it doesn't hold together. It's such... If you're going to have a DSX harmonica, let it be a fucking DSX harmonica. Either everything was fucking orchestrated by Destiny, or it wasn't. But if you're going to have Destiny being the force, then you can't have this weird little loophole. This is why every fucking time travel movie falls apart. I was just going to say... Except for Bill and Ted's. I was just going to say, it's like it's like watching a movie where some complicated shit is supposed to have gone down, and you're struggling, you've almost got it, it's like the pieces are coming together, and then the movie ends, and you're like, nope, yep, no fucking idea what just happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it, it basically just like scribbles over and is just like, complicated things, I'll fill them in later. Mm -hmm. I know somebody who had a series that was produced for television. Um, but he was talking about how the producers, the, the whole thing had been written. And then in, I think the sixth issue, some of the high mucky mucks were like, okay, so in this episode, you need to have some kind of a Kaiser Sose moment where all of these disparate pieces get put together. And he was like, I can't do that. If you're going to have that moment, you need to have planted those pieces a while ago. You can't just have a big reveal of everything tying together mandated when these other episodes have already been filmed mm -hmm. it feels like that's what they're trying to do with destiny mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to just like spackle it on at the end as as an add-on and it's really confusing and doesn't work and kind of pissed me off yeah okay yeah no it doesn't make any damn sense yeah. i was hoping i would come over and i'd be like oh i'm so confused and you'd be like oh that's okay here's what happened <laughs> but it turns out we were in the same sorry of confusion i did my best <laughs> not good enough Maybe Doctor Strange affected us with his hypno fingers. That was a pretty cool panel. It was pretty fun. Mm -hmm. He has this scene where he, again, very in keeping with the DSX harmonica theme, decides, oh, we've got these bad guys here. I'll just hypnotize them and then they won't be bad guys anymore. Or something. Did they just march off in a, in a daze? I wonder where we sent them. Just, oh, just to their rooms. <laughs> just go, go upstairs in this house now. Cult leader. <laughs> and minions we have no need of you stay in your room you're cult grounded no magic <laughs> and absolutely no importing fiendish two-headed beings from another dimension for at least a month <laughs> so says dr strange oh boy dr strange is a tough dad hypno yeah fingers. dr strange uh he hypnotizes them by shooting these weird little beams out of each of his fingers mm -hmm. it's the artwork is kind of ambiguous but i really like that power and it looked pretty cool mm -hmm. it reminded me of in the 60s they tried to give superman all these crazy powers like every issue and then just like never mention them again mm. but my favorite one of those is at one point he was able to shoot tiny little supermen out of his fingers and have them fly around and do shit for him. And then he got jealous that everybody liked the tiny supermen better than they liked him. What? Yeah. Wow. Pretty great, huh? That is crazy. I did not know that. I would like to see Doctor Strange do that. Mm. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe too many. Too many Stranges? Yeah. Picture that little tiny dude being arrogant. It's kind of funny. Or like three inch Doctor Strange. <laughs> being an entitled prick uh, <laughs> talking about how great he was yeah i think i would like that way better there's a sword in this thing uh, you had a lot of problems with this sword i had problems with the way that it was used okay so the sword is a sword that if you stab people in the forehead with it it drains all of their energy out and it's got like two little prongs at the end yeah it's kind of like a 
large, very large fondue fork. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't they just get a couple of swords? You're not saving money at that point. Oh, well, Destiny. Oh. Two people are going to be on the altar. Right. You only need two prongs for your, one for each brain. So it's just conservation? Probably. Okay. It's easier. Yeah. I'm going to lose track of them. And Nyborg seems like he's got the cash. He probably could have just bought an extra energy sword. But you had a problem with this energy sword other than that. Nobody holds it by the fucking handle. Yeah. Or, I'm sorry, the hilt. I looked this up because <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe that's just a thing. People yeah. grab swords by the blade. Nope. Ev- no, everybody is grabbing the sword by the blade. Uh, so who does it? The Nyborg two- does it. Nyborg does it. Twice. Glenn does it on the cover. And the, the thing, thing does it. Twice also. Here's the reason for it, and it ties into the everybody in this town being high. Okay. They built the goddamn sword too long. Oh. Just from a physical standpoint... Nobody can actually reach up to the hilt and pull it out like that. Mm. It, they went ornate. Mm. They built a five-foot bong, and now they need a second uh, person to light the bowl if the one person is taking a hit. And a little ladder to yep. go up on. They didn't think it through. Yep. As the dude sitting with his five-foot bong alone in his room being like, Fuck, I gotta get some long matches. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Vermont. Thanks, Enchantress. Jeez. Yeah, I was super annoyed by that. And also, like, it looks pretty scary. It's got these very pointy ends on the forehead part. And they're plunged into the forehead of Doctor Strange and Valkyrie. And when you see something like that, you're like, those people are fucking dead. Yup. And this thing just, like, pulls it out and bloop. It's like, oh, it just they're fine. No mark. Didn't leave a mark. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah, that's true. And I actually have more to say on that subject. Do you have anything else you want to bring up before we get into the minutiae? No. All right. Well, Rick, you want to sing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, let's hit up I Just Gotta Be a Sucker first. Okay. Every issue of a Defenders comic has at least one character who acts in a way that doesn't make any sense for their character to act, but that furthers the plot. In this issue, the character who I found just gotta be a sucker was Celestia Denton, for all kinds of reasons. We don't know a ton about this woman, but the main thing that she did that made no goddamn sense is explain with her dying words off panel that the sword was somehow made out of energy that just sucked people dry and wouldn't actually hurt Steve or Val which apparently is something that she did, but doesn't make a goddamn lick of sense for her to do. I'll read the thing's dialogue. So he's just grabbed the harmonica and crushed it, and boom, everything's back to normal. Mm -hmm. She turned to ashes like she was burning up before my eyes, but she said something as she died. Something about this here sword, and I only hope she was right. Cripes, it's true. There's no wounds on Doc or Val. They was stabbed by magic. Mm -hmm. What did she say? We have no fucking idea. She does not get any dialogue other than the word no that we get to see after Ben grabs the harmonica and she dissolves into dust. But apparently, as she is collapsing into a pile of dust, she says, Oh, one more thing! The thing! It turns out that that sword that Steve and Val have been stabbed with is a sword that is made out of magic that is just sucking magical energy out of their souls and isn't actually physically harming them. Ah! They'll be fine. 
Also, I'm evil, and I don't want them to be fine. Uh, yeah, so she says all that, and then just ends it with, which I think is bad! Right. Okay, that's a So that's yeah, a fair that's sucka. my sucka. Granted, we don't know a lot about Celestia Denton or what her motivation is, but that makes no goddamn sense. That's true. Who did you have as your sucka? I kept it a little more traditional with one of the main characters, but what I wrote was a little bit wishy-washy. I wrote Val, I guess. <laughs> was that about her not wanting anyone to find out that she's an amnesiac? It was that partly, yeah, that, that idea like, oh, I'm so high, nobody can know, oh my god, everybody knows thing. But more so, I know she's on a vision quest to learn about Barbara. Sure. And so that's got her understandably troubled and, you know, kind of inward facing a little bit. Mm -hmm. But at no point in this did I really see how I'm used to seeing Val, who's somebody that's not going to put up with a lot of bullshit. Well, she does have the moment at the beginning where the thing is like, here, I'll hoist your dad's corpse into the fantastic car and we'll go home. And we do see, honestly, it's the first time in a few issues we've seen this much spirit out of Val. No, no one touches him but me. Do you hear? No one. I shall bear him to Cobbler's Roost by myself, alone. Mm -hmm. yep. I don't know why exactly she has to do that. She doesn't have any particular bond to this guy other than the bond of not having a bond, which I understand. Death affects people in a number of different ways. And I think partly what she's feeling is guilt for not feeling sadder, probably. But I did like seeing her stand up to somebody, which she hasn't done in a few issues. And I think of as being one of her defining characteristics. And that's a fair point. But more so, I was thinking in terms of the way that the action usually plays out in these things. And she was just kind of passive other than, than that part, which was a bummer. Yeah, I agree. Sound effects. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? It's kind of a toss-up between two of them. I also had two. I wonder if they are the same. There weren't a ton to choose from. Was one of them cram with a K? Yes, it was. <laughs> cram is the noise it makes when the executioner is punched into a tree. Punched. He gets crammed right into that he tree. Got punched so hard by the thing. Cram! Mm -hmm. The other one? The other one falls into the category of sound effects that I think in the past we've referred to as Fuddian? Fudzian? <laughs> and it's the noise that it makes, I think, when the thing's bottom hits the ground. Yeah, he falls on his butt and it makes the noise. Fud! Indeed. P-H-U-D. Fud. Yeah. <laughs> Which is nice because it, it does sound kind of like Elmer Fudd saying thud, mm -hmm. but also it could just be Elmer Fudd saying fud. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, it quacked me up. I enjoyed it as well. Yeah, good stuff. What were your favorite words in this issue? My favorite words was a little bit of, uh, let's call it speaking truth to privilege. <laughs> and it was um, the thing lecturing Doctor Strange on stopped spying on everybody all the time like a big asshole. Okay, let's hear it. So it's the panel is zoomed in on the thing's face and he's holding up one finger and he's kind of <laughs> waving it in the face of Doctor Strange's astral form and he's saying, Man, you just don't know when to quit, do you? I thought we decided we was gonna lay off the I spy bit, but never mind that. If you was watching all this, then you gotta know that the last thing the kid needs now is company. She's grieving, mister. Let her do it in peace. Yeah, the thing is great. Mm-hmm. My favorite dialogue is all from The Thing, but I've got a couple of different choices. One of them is him talking shit to the executioner. Mister, I met some creeps in my time, but you take every crumb of the cake. Don't you feel nothing about nothing? 
Mm-hmm. I like that. That was very the thing. I also liked on page seven, after he finishes lecturing Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange blinks away and he goes, nuts. I come this far with this whole crazy business. I might as well see it through to the end. I just hope you don't mind if I catch a snooze while I'm waiting for you bozos. After all, I've been awake all night. Because he's asleep. Mm -hmm. It's cute. And I like the fact that he used the word bozo. Yep. But my absolute favorite dialogue in this whole issue, once again by The Thing, is a little speech I like to call lampshade on the nonsense. Because... He's really hanging a little sign around the fact that nothing that happens in this issue or in Marvel Team Up number seven makes a ton of sense. The two Asgardian assholes have just teleported away in a giant cloud of pot smoke. And the thing says, they're gone, both of them. Enchantress must have figured the harmonica's power was all used up after Alvin blew it and the world fell apart. Yeah, that sounds stupid enough to be right. Sure, who says life had to make sense? That there had to be a reason for living and dying. I feel like those two <laughs> panels of dialogue are, yeah, they just sum it up. And maybe it was a little guilty admission. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, oh, this doesn't make sense. I'll have this character say, this doesn't make sense. Problem solved. <laughs> then I'll finish the comic. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'll make so much more sense. Uh. Sartorially speaking. There was a fair amount to choose from. There was some interesting fashion choices happening in this. What would you like to start with? Well, we already did discuss the Enchantress of Weed. Sure, and, sure. Uh, I thought that was a pretty good look, just in general. Her yep. whole light green thing she's got going on. Her and this comic book make a lot more sense if that is a pot leaf rather than a green butterfly she's wearing on her head. Mm -hmm. I also would just like to point out real quickly the fact that in this, Steve's astral form isn't wearing the cape of levitation. Dude looks like an idiot without a Dracula cape. Mm -hmm. I see that thing. I'm like, Steve, go home and put on a Dracula cape. You look like a fucking idiot. It's weird that it makes that much of a difference, but pajamas and cape, tight look. Just pajamas? No, thank you. Yeah, don't wear that to the store. No way. And I think that is perhaps another sign that Vince Coletta did a larger percentage of the artwork because that is something that Silver Age Doctor Strange used to do a lot more. Uh, when he would appear in his astral form, he wouldn't have his cloak of levitation. But we've seen it pretty consistently in the Defenders. His astral form is still wearing his Dracula cape. Mm -hmm. This, he's just wearing PJs. It looks weird and I don't care for it. Lazy. Yeah. Dude, put your cape on. Put your cape on before you leave the house. You're a grown man. That's right. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about Van Nyborg's outfit? Yeah, my notes were hat, collar. Pretty much. He's got a Dracula cape too pretty good look mm -hmm. other than that he's dressed a little like the psycho pirate i would say he's got a little hood on got a crazy um, hood ornament though he's got a crazy hood ornament but it's a lazy kind of crazy hood ornament i feel like oh. it's lazy crazy he's wearing a hat that has like a little paper boat on top of it that then has a diamond with a moon on top of it mm -hmm. looks like kind of like a car jack oh yeah like uh yeah, like you would use to lift up your car to change the tire. Mm -hmm. Like a little telescoping thing with a crescent moon at the top of it. He's got like a yellow palm tree on his chest or something. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the top of a pineapple. Oh. I think he's just saying, makes more sense. I threw away the good part of the pineapple because I'm fucking crazy. God, I'm so evil. <laughs> That's what evil people That's do. That's what evil people do. <laughs> just throw away the perfectly good fruit part of the pineapple. I'm going to keep the spiky top. Mm. 
I'm a fucking idiot. What a jerk. My name's Van Nyborg the Cyborg. I hate pineapple. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's got the hydraulic jack on his head. It's because he's a cyborg. Oh, it's all coming together. So it's it's a weird hat. I want it to be more elaborate. I want it to be a straight up fucking Jack Kirby Galactus hat. And I feel like that's what it calls for. But it's just like the minimum of that. Mm. It's like the least crazy a crazy hat can be. And eh. Yeah. I did like that his uniform, Van Nyborg's, is like a somewhat fancier version of the other cultist uniforms. And when Doctor Strange is wet is uh forcing them all to go to go to their rooms uh-huh. like he's leading them and there's this little procession of less fancy dudes behind him yeah it's, it's pretty funny it, it makes sense it makes sense that like the weird little tire jack on his head is like the sergeant stripes mm-hmm. you gotta earn those yeah yeah good for you van nyborg to cyborg wear that tire jack proud yeah you earned it probably by being a crazy idiot mm. you want to get into best defender worst offender I don't see why not. All right. In this issue, who was the best defender? Ben Grimm. Hell yeah. The thing rocks. Mm-hmm. Huh? Oh. Huh? Yeah, he crushed it. Oh. He clobbered it. Indeed. It was clobbering time all issue long. Yeah, this was great. He he is a great character. I think you can also tell Gerber had been writing Marvel 2-in-1 for a little while at this point. And it definitely seemed like the thing was the character that he had the best grasp on. Mm -hmm. He seemed like the most fully developed character that he was the most comfortable writing. And I just love the thing and the way he comes across in this. He's definitely the most human despite looking the least human. And that's something I always appreciated about that character. Does a good job. Crushes that harmonica because he's not the Hulk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, shows a, a lot of empathy for Val. Just acts great. Does great. Punches Glenn in his stupid two-headed face. Mm-hmm. And overhears Celestia Denton's fucking crazy nonsense about swords and saves the day. Great job, the thing. Indeed. Conversely. The worst. Whose fault? If we take away the whole destiny is everything, harmonica is everything, <laughs> Celestia is everything... Doesn't make anything sense, doesn't make sense thing. If we take that out of the equation, this whole fucking thing is Steve Strange's fault. Yeah? Yeah. How so? Because he took it upon himself to unmate Babs from No Name. Okay. Yeah, he broke up Babs and Glenn against Babs' will. With no warning. With no warning, and that, that uh, that did fuck up her brain a bit. Okay, I get that. If that hadn't happened, I guess we'd have no Valkyrie. Or Valkyrie in her current Okay, but that didn't happen in this issue. This whole issue would not have happened, and I would not have had to read this bunch of confusing malarkey if Steve Strange hadn't done that. I don't know. I think think Celestia might have just played a different tune on her harmonica. Destiny will find a way. It's like life in Jurassic Park, man. No expense was spared? No expense was spared. (laughs) (laughs) Clever girl. (laughs) Celestia, clever girl. Uh, Corey, they've got some DNA in those dinosaurs. Oh, no. <laughs> I, stand, um, <laughs> I stand by my reasoning. Okay. If I, nothing else... Go ahead. It's still creepy for him to always use his eye to spy on people. 
I have okay. Agamotto. Okay, That's I get that. Cool. His celestial form, he didn't listen to Ben about his, about about using his celestial form to spy on him, which mm-hmm. Ben was very clear and very good about setting boundaries, which I appreciate about Ben Grimm and is really how you need to deal with Doctor Strange. Well, it doesn't work, but it is the best it's you can do. It's important to try. I decided to go with Nighthawk. Really? Yeah. Did he, he didn't do much, but he did he do something actively. Because him and Steve are that fucking couple. They just show up and immediately start fucking bickering in front of a dude who to Nighthawk is a stranger. He just starts bitching to Ben about his relationship with Steve. I forgot about that. And those couple panels were probably my favorite part of this whole comic. I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah. Because Steve really loses, starts to, he's he's like, Nighthawk? Not in front of, not in front of company. You're making everyone very uncomfortable, Nighthawk. Which I think is a fair point. I don't know. I think the the thing kind of relished it. He was like, got a little dig in there that was like, if the Fantastic Four was as dysfunctional as, as you fuck-ups, like, <laughs> the Earth would have been destroyed a bunch of times already. Yeah, Nighthawk's like, that's what I keep telling him. I, either way, I don't think he should be including Ben into his personal problems. <laughs> that's very considerate. So Nighthawk shows up... <laughs> Clea mentioned something about the Defenders. You guys got a group going or something? We can discuss this later, you two. Val may need us now. What's the matter, Doc? Embarrassed by the answer to that question? (laughs) Yeah, you never take me out anywhere. And I always have to drive. (laughs) Yeah, the Defenders are a group, classy name, our own headquarters, and six or seven members who never want to get together. Some of us show up sometimes, others other times. And Dr. Strange goes, Nighthawk! Yeah, he's not happy about it. No, and I think that is fair. I I mean, you just met this dude. Don't dump all all over him with that shit. I think he's just doing his best to try and um, make the team stronger. That is not how you go about that. By sowing dissent, you solve that shit in the locker room. I don't know what that means. I don't either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite panel? Oh, there was one featuring... The thing on page 30. Um, and before you had mentioned one of your favorite things about the thing is that he punches to a head yeah. Glenn in the in his stupid demon head. Yeah. I didn't read it that way. In fact, I titled this panel Chance, Coincidence, Dick Punch. Because <laughs> I think we have a classic dick punch right here. Oh, that certainly could be. It's a little bit ambiguous. Something you get with Sal Buscema art a lot is... If there is a punch, then there is a starburst of impact enough that you can't see the dude's torso. And with this one, you where you can't see Glenn's lower head, I assumed that he was being punched in the head, but you're right, it does look lower than that. I think that's a demonic, dimensionally displaced dick punch. Yep, and look at Glenn's. The one face we can see looks very, very hurt. He does not that. care for that. He does not like that punch. And yes, you're right, the little box in the corner says, Chance? Coincidence? Dick Dick Punch. punch. Good call. Thank you. Excellent. That is a wonderful panel. On the same page, there is Nighthawk punching Van Nyborg and a couple of the Van Nyborgettes, (laughs) which is pretty fun. I think one of my favorites, God, I don't know about favorite, but it is certainly a panel worth noting, is on page 10, the first panel on the page. It is the flashback of what happened, not in Marvel 2-in-1 number 7, but the issue that preceded that, Marvel 2-in-1 number 6. 
And it is a giant rat who has been brought to life by the harmonica when the spark from the hippie playing the harmonica, who I guess was Valkyrie's mom, but a younger version of Valkyrie's mom, got hit by a train. Mm. This street tough, his destiny was to never escape the slum, and how that manifested itself was a giant rat who attacked Steve and the thing. Which is to say, there is a panel of a giant rat attacking the thing, and... This giant rat appears to have a penis for a nose. Yeah. And it's just kind of draping it over the thing's shoulder. Yeah, right next to the thing's face, and the thing looks horrified by this turn Understandably of so. Possibly because it's a giant rat. Possibly because that giant rat just put its face penis on his shoulder. <laughs> it's like, hey, thing. Either way. Thing's not having it. No. What the fuck is up with that rat? It is a weirdly drawn rat. It knows. Really, yeah, I don't know if that's my favorite panel, but it's the one I kind of can't stop thinking about. It's only got one nostril right in the middle. Yeah, that's not how noses work. <laughs> I've seen rats. They don't look like that. Nope. I don't understand why people keep them as pets. I think Maybe. some people like them. Yeah. But I, they have tiny human-like hands that freak me out. Mm. I don't care for it. But what they don't have generally is giant penises on their face. Nope. Generally, not the case. This rat breaks all the rules. <laughs> this is not your father's rat. Oh. This rat has a penis for a face. <laughs> Were there any other panels you wanted to talk about? Yeah, actually, you touched on it earlier, and I think it's one of the more charming panels in this whole thing, and that's the thing talking to himself and snoozing under a tree. That is pretty fun. He looks so chilled out. He's like got his arms behind his head, one leg crossed over his knee. Uh huh. Super relaxed. What a guy. Yeah. I used to have a coloring book. It was a Mr. T coloring and activity book. And there is a panel of Mr. T relaxing in a hammock and you're supposed to, it has a little thought bubble and you're supposed to draw what he's dreaming of up there. I use that for a lot of show flyers. But uh, yeah, it reminds me a lot of that. Taking a snooze, relaxing. He's the thing. That is a fun panel. You know what? I think this potential title, as suggested by Brad Reed, is appropriate for this issue of the What Wong is Doing segment. Okay. So let's call this week's one, Art is Wong and Time is Fleeting. <laughs> oh my. Okay. Very uriodite. Mm. So, as Art is Wong and Time is Fleeting, what was Wong doing in February of 1975? February 1975. So there was a few things going on. One of them was that, and this seems a little bit out of character for Wong. Oh, yeah? But he's kind of had this thing for cars for a little while. and <laughs> I think we have the same one. <laughs> oh, no. I don't, I don't know if we do. Um, so he's been saving up his, his money. Mm-hmm. And uh, so February 75 was the, was the year that, uh, that AMC released... The the very sexy pacer. Yeah, that thing's fucking gorgeous. Yep. However, none to be found on the eastern seaboard. Really? Yeah. Wong actually had to go all the way out west to a car dealership, an AMC dealership in Seattle. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. To get his bright yellow 
brand new pacer. Nice. And he was stoked about this. But, you know, while the usual back and forth was happening, the sales guy was like, oh, let me go talk to my manager. And Wong's like, fuck that shit. And anyway, he had to sit there in the waiting room. Right. And he picked up a magazine. And one of the magazines that he picked up that really intrigued him, because as we know, he's into all things scientific, mm -hmm. was the uh, Feb February 1975 issue of Popular Electronics. Oh. Which featured on its cover the Altair... 8800 which is one of the first pcs that came out with the intel 8800 chip inside and he was like oh man this is really fascinating but like this is going to be difficult for people to use this i i wonder what could be implemented to to kind of bring this technology to the masses and uh, actually turns out that he used buddies from some lectures that he gave at college with steve allen oh who you know, as the owner probably of the Portland Trailblazers and the Seattle no, Seahawks. I don't. I know Steve Allen as the host of several TV shows in the 50s. I know Paul Allen as the owner of the Seattle Seahawks and the Portland Trailblazers. So Steve was Wong's <laughs> pet name for Paul Allen. Oh, okay. <laughs> which, is, which is what I wrote down. And I guess I was thinking of Steve Allen instead because that was more funny to my brain. And so Wong thinks of like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta share this information with my buddy Paul. Like he's always had this really strong interest in, in technology mm -hmm. and, and how how humans relate to it. So anyway, long story short, he he gets his pacer. He's super. I think happy. you mean Wong story. Wong short. story short, he gets his pacer. Um, because the sales guy was such a dick, he just takes the magazine with him and he goes and he meets Paul for lunch and shows him this magazine. He's like, oh, it's really interesting. And so later, Paul Allen actually ends up taking that and shows it to his buddy Bill. Bill Gates. Oh. And that is essentially the creation story of how Microsoft started because they, using the basic programming language, wrote what became the interface, what then went on to become wow. Windows. So, for better or for worse, we have Wong to thank or blame for Microsoft. For Microsoft. Wow. That was in a very eventful February of 1975. Indeed. The other thing that he was up to earlier in the month. Wong had kind of a bad Valentine's Day. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, it's a Hallmark holiday. It's not really his thing. So he decided to stay at home, which was fine. But then he found out one of his literary idols, P.G. Wodehouse, died. P.G. Wodehouse was the guy who wrote the Jeeves and Worcester series. And Jeeves is the kind of character who Wong tried to model his behavior after. It really makes sense to see Stephen Strange as a bit of a more arrogant Bertie Wooster, kind of a bumbling idiot who has his butler solve all of his problems and do everything for him. Mm -hmm. And Wong certainly found great humor, as I did, frankly, in uh, in P.G. Wodehouse's Jeeves stories. So he was pretty bummed to see that P.G. Wodehouse had passed. And so he'd already been thinking about mortality. And uh, I don't know, the next week, he's flipping through the channels and watching the Today Show. He sees a kidney <laughs> transplant on live television, and he's like, what is this country coming to? Mm. It gets him more in his head about just, like, thoughts of mortality. Steve's not helping things, just, you know, mm -hmm. being, being Steve. Steve and, right. like, he brings up things like that. He's like, oh, yes, I used to be a doctor. People die of kidney failure all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that was why Wong decided, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do something for me. I'm going to go to Seattle and buy that AMC pacer. <laughs> I also had him buying a pacer. That's awesome. <laughs> so canonically, Wong is definitely into the AMC pacer. 
That's a cool looking fucking car. Do you have him get a yellow one also? Or? Of course he did. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's the well. best color for an AMC Pacer. Yeah, I know. But... He's Wong. He knows that shit. Yep. And yeah, that is what he was up to because art is Wong and time is fleeting. And how. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us, dear listeners. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, we're into the Gerber era of the Defenders now. So the next issue promises to introduce... One of my favorite teams of villains, I guess? The Headmen. So we will be back in two weeks with that, and we will be back next week with a fun new Teen Titans story. I believe we are about to begin one of the most influential Titans story arcs. So I might be wrong. I don't want to say it in case I am, but uh, it should be a good episode next week. I'm looking forward to it. Featuring Steve Allen. Probably. (laughs) He's popping up everywhere these days. Weird. It's really a dumb thing, but whenever I think of Steve (laughs) Allen, I think of this. He did this poem that was, uh, roses are red, violets are blue. You think this will rhyme, but it doesn't. Mm. Zing. It's such a stupid, simple joke, but it it cracks me up a little bit every Mm -hmm. time I hear it. That's nice. Yeah, Steve Allen. Good guy. All right. Yeah. Founder of Microsoft. Yep. Owner of Trailblazers. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I think he was the Flash, too. What? Oh, that's Barry Allen. Oh. (laughs) That's Steve Barry Allen. (laughs) Right. There's so many. Yeah, well, he was a very busy man. Mm -hmm. Well, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you'd like to get into touch with us, then stay tuned for our forthcoming podcast, Getting Into Touch with With Hub Hub and and Corey, in which we explore tactile sensations. Uh, Yeah, you can follow us on Facebook. We're on Tumblr and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, tell people about it in any way you can. If you'd like to leave us a review, you can do so. Please do on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you use. And... If you would like to donate some money, that would be very nice. The way to do that is to go to patreon.com backslash ttwasteland. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It's clobbering time. So says Steve Allen. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining us, and welcome back to another episode of Getting Into Touch. With Corey? And Hub. So, Corey, have you touched anything great this week? Let's see. I think that the most interesting thing I've touched this week has to be the remote control hmm. on my television hmm. set. What Now, is it? Uh, would you describe it as being like a little bit gummy or sticky or just smooth? And uh, did it have any Velcro on it? No Velcro. Hmm smooth yeah yeah. yet the buttons are just slightly rubbery Ooh, yeah 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 now see as time goes on they can build up a little bit of extra gump and they can get a little bit gummy as well that's a very interesting tactile sensation to explore Mm, gumminess i think is is one of the you know similar to texture and food it's uh I, i would say it's perhaps the umami of tactile sensations it's it's uh the fifth flavor of touch it's as if... <laughs> <laughs> it's as if mouthfeel... <laughs> I'm dead. Of I'm dead fi- now. Of the fingertips. 
experience for the... <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay.